Magic in Medicine is a podcast about the power of living creatively and how when we do so, we heal ourselves and the web of life. When you choose to do life your own way, it opens the door to wholeness, adventure, and originality. I'll be talking to makers and mystics about the way creativity shows up in their lives, how it fits into their days, and what impact what they make has on the world. I'm Robin Mayberry, and I'm an artist, a bodywork practitioner, and a maker of many things. I launched this show to explore the brilliant minds of beautiful creatives who have chosen lives that reflect what's most true for them, so they can make what only they can make and be the perfect match for what the world needs now. I believe that by being our full selves, we can weave a better world. I believe that art is magic and medicine. Enjoy the episode. Hello to all listening in today. This is going to be such a great chat we're having today. I'm meeting with Jackie Canterbury, who is owner and proprietor of Slow Fiber, a one-person show that does many, many things that we're going to talk about down in California. Um, Jackie does reclaimed textiles. So that means making clothes out of um, uh, thrifted clothing, teaching other people how to make clothing, um, either from scratch or from thrifted clothing. You do dyeing, you do um, uh, manipulation of all kinds of clothing and fabric and many, many other things. But that's what draw, drew me to you because I love that stuff. And we're going to talk all about your business today and your mission, which um, in this in this podcast, we're really exploring how the creative life creates a richer world, makes answer or opens a door for solutions to some of our complex problems and um, as a as a global society. And you know, it just makes the world a better place. So welcome, Jackie. I'm super happy to be talking to you today. Thank you, Robin. So let's just start off, like, tell me, tell me about Slow Fiber. Um, so for those who haven't heard of you yet, um, I came across you on, on Instagram, which is my favorite social media channel. And um, it just seems like you're doing a lot of things. So let's just, let's just back up. Like what started Slow Fiber for you? Okay. Um, let's see. Well, I, um, I guess, you know, I've been kind of unpacking what it is I'm doing here while I'm doing it for about 20 years um, in my head. I've been designing this store based on, based on the understanding that I'm right. I think a lot of, a lot of people want to start businesses, but they're not sure that they're right. And so when, and, and so when courage, you know, when courage meets necessity, you just have to take the leap of faith that, that you're doing it. And then all around us, we're seeing that, that, that what I'm doing is a necessity. Like you said, there's a, there's some really complex problems, um, on the planet. And so it's something, so slow fiber, something I've been, like I said, I've been organizing it for about 20 years, but I came to this like kind of crossroads in my life about four years ago. Um, through a divorce. Um, I'd been self-employed for, with my ex-husband for about 15 years prior to that. And, and um, he's, he's a coffee roaster and, and, um, and I'm a, a typical, you know, 50 year old woman who, you know, kids are grown, we get divorced. That's just what we do next. It sounds terrible, but it seems to be 
I belong to a tribe and there's a lot of us, but, um, I, you know, I was ruined for a job when you've been self-employed for that. Before that I was a school teacher. And so that's, that's kind of a form of self-employment because nobody's really telling you what to do. And so I tried to get a job and, oh my God, in my industry, I was trying to figure out like what, what's out there for me. I don't want to be a coffee roaster's wife. I don't want that to be my next job also, you know, I don't want to be like the, the girl who can do everything except roast coffee. You know, I, I wore every hat in that shop and, and, um, and so I, I realized, okay, you're at, you're at a crossroads. They're at this place in your life where if you don't do what it is that you were wired to do, you will look back with such regret. And so I had to just do it. And so, so I, I just did. And I, I started working out of my house doing mend bars and I would, you know, I'd put out a spread and people would potluck and show up and we'd just all get together and fix our stuff and did a couple of garment swaps, just trying to get a feel for what it was that people did. I actually put questionnaires out to my friends. Like what, what do we need here? Because, you know, you, you, you know, we all, we all get to use social media as sort of a, like a, it's like sticking your toe in, you know, like what's interesting about that? What's interesting about that? And really trying to figure out what people needed. And, and then somewhere, this is going to sound really stupid, but somewhere along my divorce process, my attorney says, how much would it cost you to rent a space in town? I need a number for this thing. And I'm like, I don't know. She goes, go look. And so I went on this thing called LoopNet, which is a commercial real estate, um, uh, like it's like a Zillow, but it's for commercial real estate. And I saw, I just, I don't know, probably 900 bucks a month. And, and, uh, and so I went and looked at the space. It was the one space on there that was like, Oh wait. And I started crunching the numbers really quick in my head. I went and looked at, and I took the space. Like I just took the space. I signed a one-year lease and I just took it. And I thought, Oh boy, I'm in for it now because who can afford to do this? But keep in mind, this is three months before COVID. Mm, oh my so God. Who writes COVID <laughs> into a business plan? Nobody writes COVID into a business plan. Right. So, um, so, but I've still got that in the back of my head. You know what? Do or die, do or die. Right. You've done the homework. You're doing this out of your house. You're, you're just going through the steps. And because I have the benefit of having been self-employed before I come pre-packed with a certain set of skills already. And and so I just kept going and I just kept going. So then, so then COVID happens and we, we have to close. The entire state of California just shut down until we figure out you can be essential services. Well, I, you know, I just signed a lease, right? So I went into the mask making business. I've been open five days. COVID shuts everybody down. And, um, and I go in and I have a couple friends at the, we have a great local newspaper here called the Monterey County Weekly. We're one of the last like privately owned newspapers that really does a great job and it's small, but mighty. And so I have a couple friends over there and somebody did a write-up. She's like, oh my God, you can do masks and you have a website. And she did a write-up on me. And literally while she, while it posted, I watched the ticker on my website because I had started building a website. The minute I realized I couldn't work for somebody else. And I tried, I went to work in a sweatshop in San Francisco. I'm not kidding. I worked in a sweatshop in San Francisco. I lasted four months. <clears throat> And one morning at this age, I, I'm 50 years old at the time, uh, 52 years old. I just call, called in and I said, I'm not coming back in. I'm really sorry. Like, who does that? Like, it's so irresponsible. And I just did it. And, uh, and I unapologetically, and I, that very afternoon, I sat down and learned how to build a website. So I've got this website. We've got COVID. So I have the components. And then I've got a bunch of pre-owned fabric in the, 
in my where in my uh, stash, right? It's not enough. So I'm watching the ticker on my my because um, nobody can find masks either. Remember, so right. I'm watching the ticker and like order, 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 and and within within 24 hours, I'm working 14 hours a day, sewing stupid little squares, learning how to make masks as I go. Like it just like of course this is my life and at that very that very juncture in my business I'm like you know historically I always thought it was my husband that had bad luck and that he was it was me <laughs> so anyway so for the next eight months I made masks I did fifteen hundred masks I figured out in the cracks in the middle of the night and early in the morning and 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 I, in the cracks figured out how to get fabric in had friends shipping me fabric from other places because there wasn't. You couldn't get into stores. It was by any means necessary. And so elastic, elastic was so hard to get. It was so hard to get. But because I'm pretty resourceful, I spent and I still to this day spend every waking minute at work, you know, um, but worked it out. A few times ran out of a few things, sometimes had to make that phone call. It was like, I'm sorry, I can't do this for you. Made some really bad masks and sold them, unfortunately. And so so in the in the process was reminded again of what it takes to be self-employed. You know, when I first opened the coffee roasting company, it was, you know, every hour of the day. It's just what it means to be self-employed. And so if you're asking the right, if I'm asking the right question, which is, am I doing the right thing? And am I willing to do the work? It's obvious because it's so, so that's how I got started. Wow. But I was, yeah, I was afraid. I was afraid that I wouldn't, cause I'm 52 years old when I start this place. So if I didn't have the energy for it, cause they, usually they say, you know, like you got one good big push, but then you think about like Hershey, you know, what he had like a, like a bunch of starts, false starts when he started the chocolate company. And I realized, no, you know what, when you're doing the right work, when you're doing the exact right work, it's the food, it's the energy I needed. Like I, I'm never tired. And I literally work every hour of the day because I know that I'm doing the exact right thing. Okay. So I'm okay. I'm, I'm curious about a bunch of things. First yeah. of all, I want to just back up for a second and say menopause. <laughs> <laughs> that, that happened too, right in the middle of all of that. <laughs> I think, and I'm going to just, I'm going to circle to this for a moment because yeah, I'm in that club. Well, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to get divorced because my husband and I are really, um, really talking through it, yeah. but I do see that tribe people, women, you know, your kids grow up and you're like, you know, we're done here. We're done with this. And, um, I read that book, the wisdom of menopause. Have you read that book? No, no, I don't have time to read books. I want to. One of those. Okay, well, I'll just give you the the key point is that basically, and I'm going to say this for everyone. I'm like the proselytizer now about this because I always thought the menopause was that, or you were a child, then you went into adolescent or puberty and you started getting your period, and then you went through menopause and you stopped getting your period, and that's it. That's what I thought, and I did not know. And so now I tell everyone that I possibly can. When women go through menopause, which is long, it's like a ten year process perimenopause and menopause, we totally change. Our whole hormonal cocktail changes and we no longer are hormonally set up just to take care of everybody else. And what happens is we actually return to essentially the hormonal balance we had as children, but now we have resources. So the stuff you love to do as a kid, now you can go out and do it. And one of the things that's happening in our world, and this is like why I'm loving talking to you, is that women live longer now. 
So we have, it's something we're contributing in a unique way to the global society is women who live into the menopausal years and actually have many years of being functional, creative people without having to divert all that energy to child rearing, we can make a contribution in a way that no other demographic can. Yeah, so, that's awesome. Thank you for saying that. And I like that the way you stacked that. So I see you doing that. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. So, and then a question I want to ask you too is when you were saying everyone was shipping you all the fabric, was it reclaimed fabrics? Was it like secondhand fabric? Anything I could get my hands on. I did go stand in line at Joanne Fabrics once to and, oh. and I was in there and there's all these people with the, the shopping carts like stacked, like pushing, like looking around the edges of the <laughs> because that it's all there was. It's all there was. And we didn't know how much how, we knew nothing. We just knew put your head down and do what you can. So yeah, but I have a girlfriend who lives in Indiana. She shipped me a huge box of fabric, but these, she's a quilter and these were fabrics from her attic. So they had this decidedly like early nineties flair to them, which I thought was really funny. Lots of blue and pink with hearts and bunnies. And <laughs> it was fabulous. You know, if you search for vintage fabric on like Etsy or something, that's what comes up now. I'm like, that's vintage? Yep, I know. <laughs> you know the moons and stars that's right oh. that's exactly right yeah so so yeah so it was fun too and 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 then I also in my store something that you might not know is that in my store I have a whole room that's just pre-owned fabric uh vintage dead stock unusual imported weird things and so I from the minute I opened my door, I was taking donations and buying like a bookstore or a record store from people. So, so it started to ship pretty soon. I had a lot. And I have a friend here in town who brought me like, 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 like two trash bags. So pretty soon I was in really good shape. You, uh, just, you have to put it out to the universe, what you want, or you're not going to get it. You're in Monterey. I just got to come down and go shopping. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah. So did the sustainability piece, was that baked into your idea all along? Yeah, I think, you know, I grew up kind of poor. I, well, I grew up in the 80s. Everybody was kind of poor. We had a recession. Remember, if you're my age, the 80s were hard in blue collar towns. And and so I, I can't say and, and my mom came. My mom's got kind of these beautiful Midwestern sensibilities where economy is honored. And so we had, I grew up in a really unusual house compared to a lot of the people around me. And in hindsight, it's, it's a fabulous, beautiful thing. Being a kid in it was kind of hard, you know? Um, and, and so I, I, um, I come to, I come to this kind of through, through being kind of broke and realizing that, and no, but you know what, it's better than that. Cause I also grew up in the house where you could climb the walls, bounce on the bed, um, take everything out of the kitchen and make whatever you want. And, you know, my mom really encouraged my brother's a, my brother's a welder, like a really high skilled, like we, we'd like do stuff in our house. And, and so my, um, my upbringing was such that, 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 that scarcity create causes creativity you see it in third world cultures a lot where where we can make something out of nothing watch well I grew up in that house and so I come to this kind of honestly I've always been this way and I have this need I've always had an enormous closet too and I fill it no matter what I like having a lot to choose from I almost never bought new as a young person it just didn't make sense it was such a waste of money to me you know if, if I could 
if I could spend $40 on a pair of pants, well, I can spend six and spend $35 at the bar, you know, <laughs> so, so the logic sound, you know, I mean, so everything, everything I did told me that, and I, I don't get caught up in other people's egos. So, you know, I have these pretty solid punk rock roots and, and I, and I, so what other people think is none of my business. So I never got like, oh, if only I had those jeans and that jacket, and then I would be cool if I drove that car. I don't care. Like I, you can follow me, but I don't care what you're doing, you know? And it takes a lot of courage to be that. It takes a lot of courage to be that. But the more you exercise courage, the bigger it gets, you know? And and there's, you know, when 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 these kinds of things come together, I guess I'm the kind of person that's, that's, that's made. And there's a, there's a lot of, I'm realizing there's a lot of people like me. Um, and it's fun. Like my, my network has, has really, um, grown. And so I'm no longer alone in that, you know, being, being that kind of person as a young person is, can be a lonely place. Um, and it, and you can be excluded from things, but that's not my story anymore, you know? And so, um, I always feel bad for the people that were super popular in high school because they peaked when they were 16 and then it just seems like sometimes they just struggle the rest of their lives like what happened i still have the cool jacket right (laughs) right yeah no no you're a lost cause in high school you're gonna be okay (laughs) yeah you know what and it is what our goal you know with our children is not we're not trying to make happy children we want to make successful grunts my parents nailed that they nailed that you know we were really good at being resourceful and i think that's where that's where where um you know, you gotta, you gotta struggle for life to get good. You have to struggle. So is it a struggle? So run So, so let's talk about your business. Cause you do everything. And you were, so you said a couple of times, you just do it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I've been, I'm curious about this. Is it a struggle? Is it, well, you said a lot of energy comes out of it, but um, do you feel like you have to put your head down and plow through, or does it just kind of flow through for you? I, um, I did that already, you know, I mean, I've been here about two and a half years now and, and, and I think the worst of it is behind me. Um, the, you know, for a while there, I was having to put my own money in to keep the doors open. And now the place not only pays for itself, but it pays me not Mm -hmm. a bunch, but it's, I'm moving in the right direction. You know, um, I, I think it's relentless. I would call the work relentless because there's so much of it. But as I, my problem is everything's so interesting. Somebody says, oh, we should do a die camp. I'm like squirrel. And I go and I want to <laughs> And somebody says, oh, you know, it would be really fun. I'm like, yes. You know, and so I, so I want to do it all. But, but I, I um, the parts of it that I like the most, I won't let go of. You know, I had a lot of employees when I owned the coffee roasting company. And that is not something I want to revisit. So I have the, I have the luxury of, of, um, no strings. So I can, I can, I'm like a helicopter. I can turn, I can be really nimble. You know, there are parts of the work that you can't get away from. The bookkeeping is always going to be there. Um, you know, somebody's, somebody's got a vacuum, <laughs> you know, arrange the fabrics and open yeah, the door. Yeah, yeah. It would be nice if I could just sew all day long, but that's not what I do. I sew at night. You know, I get home from work at like eight o'clock and that's when I sew. And so I work, I literally work from seven in the morning till about seven or eight at night every day. And then I come home and I sew and I sew in my lap and I don't, I'm, I don't cook and I don't clean. So I, 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 and my partner lives two hours away. My, my, my current partner 
who I adore and he's my muse, you know, and he's a workaholic also. So it's, it works out really good. We see each other for a couple of days on the weekend, parts of a couple of days on the weekend. And it's, and so this is all I want to do. My kid's up and gone, you know, I'm, I, I, what else would I do? So you get to focus on what you love the most. Yeah. The, yeah, right? yeah. What are yeah. you sewing? What am I sewing right now? Yeah. Um, I'm making a, I'm doing a trade with a friend who is a local painter who's, a, she's magic. And I'm, I'm making a dress for her out of four merino wool sweaters oh. um, that I've taken down and I'm putting back together. That I'm, I'm hand sewing that because she and I meet, that's someplace where we meet is that we both love hand stitched garments. So I'm making that for her in exchange for a painting. And I'm working, I have, I started something called the Garment Hive and there's a, a group of us that um, just started meeting and we're all garment makers. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, we decided we would do the new Merchant and Mills Miller pattern, which is a vest. I love Merchant and Mills. Yes. So much. Yeah. I, I sell all their stuff in my store. They're my, they're my, my tools corner. Um, and, uh, and so we're all working on that vest in, in our own way. So that's going to be fun, you know, so we get to commiserate on the hard parts and, and, um, and like one of us is a weaver. So she wove the fabric first, you know, and like, so every, and I'm an upcycler. So for, for me, it's, it's good for me. I've learned that I can learn from other people without feeling challenged. I can learn, I can be me in that group. You know, I've tended to, in my whole working sewing life and knitting life, I've, worked alone because other people's input I find um distress distressing I don't want your input and I don't I don't want to look at your stuff because it interferes with what I make you know but I'm learning to do that so I'm kind of juvenile in the in the like group dynamic part of making um so I'm doing that best with them and then I'm um always have something cut out to to sew up and I'm knitting a couple of things I, they're all around me here um um and then I've got fabric on a shelf in front of me that I look at and I'm always trying to match fabric with patterns. I don't go and say, I want to make, you know, a thing. And then I'm now I'm going to go buy the fabric. And I buy the fabric when I see it. And then I, I buy the pattern when I see it or I dream it up in my head when I see it. I don't always work from a pattern. Sometimes I work out of my head and I have my own personal patterns that I that have evolved over time. And so I'm always kind of in it. There's always five or six different things going and nothing gets done quickly ever so mm -hmm. it'll take me Not it'll take do hand work no yeah yeah but you know i i will machine sew things like i i um for for teaching purposes like i just finished a 100 acts of sewing shirt for the second time because i can use it as a demo um and her patterns are great because they're so accessible she's here in san francisco she's called sonia phillips and she she did a book and and her she's phenomenal get your hands on her she's really something special phillips is her name sonia phillips Philip, I don't think there's an S at the end and she's 100 acts of sewing. Hmm. Um, yeah. And her patterns are simple, accessible, and they're, they're, um, they're for everyone, which I love. That's not easy to do. So that, so let's, let's talk about how you're, what you're doing, what would it look like? Do you think if more people did what you were doing, if we need, we need more people do it. Yeah. You mean people like as a business or as just a practice? Both. Both. Okay. So let's just talk about like upcycling, making your own clothes, treating material as a limited resource and not just something that just gets thrown in a dumpster after it's done polluting rivers and 
you know, burning down rainforests. Yeah, no, no, for sure. What, what's your vision? I mean, because you, I'm, I'm guessing you have one. Right, 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 right. So I think the trick, the trick, let's back up to, um, I think the trick is to look into then times, go into history and figure out when it worked. When was it actually, or did it appear to work? You know, don't get too into the minutia about it. But, you know, historically we had these businesses that were called haberdasheries. In, the, in, in, the, in Britain, they're called haberdasheries. I'm sure they're called something different everywhere else on the planet. But it's where you would go to get the supplies to take care of the things that you had. And then department stores had uh, tables called findings where you could get the accessories. So... So you, you know, you might spend, you know, two weeks salary on a cashmere sweater in in 1940, but you'd own it for the rest of your life and you'd put ribbon down the front and then maybe you'd take the ribbon off and put something else down the front. And, and so things were precious, right? So, so if we look into history with that kind of a model, we can go back and say, well, where was it good and where did it go wrong? Right? So, so we know that fast fashion is the immediate problem. But I think what a lot of people don't look at is like how capitalism applies itself to every facet of our lives here in the U.S., which um, it it creates an automatic waste stream because every step of the textile chain um, creates waste. Every every time things change hands, there's a waste stream. People don't know that. They don't understand that that cotton is sorted. You know, let's just talk about cotton for a second. I know I'm deep dive. No, this is what I want to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, this is the juicy stuff. So if you start it like cotton, which is becoming a precious resource, which is a precious resource that's extraordinarily uh, damaging, environmentally damaging. So let's start there. So we've sorted the cotton and only half of it gets bought by the by the the next step. And then they've milled the cotton and they've turned it into cotton. Only half of that gets. And these are rough numbers. I'm just giving you an example. Only half of that gets bought and it goes to the dye place and it gets printed or whatever they do to it. And only half of that gets bought. So because it's capitalism, we only wanna buy the best of things. We see this in food, right? So know that it's happening in everything. So then even by the time it gets to me, when I buy new, like I have a small section of new things in the store that are organic, at least organic. um, And and if I don't sell them, then what, right? I mean, I can mark it down, mark it down, mark it down. But if I don't sell those things, then what? I mean, so so there's a waste stream out there. There's an unbelievable waste stream that we we are tapping in a new way. People have always, it's always been there. Um, and Americans are actually pretty good at recycling or using our waste streams. We could be better. You know, what we're seeing is a global problem. Right. If this were in-house, if this were like within our borders, it would be handled a little differently. You know how much fabric really is only processed in the United States anyway. I mean, it, it, you know, the whole thing from the cotton to the weaving, to the dyeing, to the printing. I mean, it just gets shipped all over the globe. Yeah, yeah. That, that way stream of all the shipping and- There's, <laughs> there's so much, there's so much to, to unpack there, you know, in terms of just the environmental part of this. Um, and. So I even lost sight of the initial question. What was uh, the- What if we all did that? What if we- I, That's what right. What would it look like if more people valued the materials? What, yeah. Like how, how can we steer the, the conversation back in that direction in a meaningful way? Right, okay. So so that's, I think that's what we're doing. You know what I mean? I'll be, obviously it always starts with conversation, but I think what I think what I, if more people were, Let's ask it how, let's ask the how first. I think we need more courage. 
People's willingness to fail has disappeared. We want instant results and we don't want to fail. Like one of the hardest things I do is teach people how to, how to just sew for the sake of making the mistakes. Nobody wants to do that. They want to buy the best fabric, the best pattern, and then they want to make the thing because somewhere, somewhere along the line, somebody said, you can do anything. So you're going to do it and you're going to fail, you know, and you got to be okay with the fail. I think what, what, when I tell people that half of everything I make to this day, 45 years, I've been sewing half of everything I make gets tossed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm willing to push. I'm willing to try something that, that, that creative place is where the fun is for me. So like this dress I'm making for my friend, what if it doesn't fit her? I have to go back to the drawing board and I'm super okay with that. Like my blood pressure, I get like a serial killer. Like my <laughs> blood pressure doesn't change at all. When you talk about the like 70 hours that's gone into this thing, I don't care because it was so good to do it. So I think if we can get people in that place, then, then we can talk about what it would be like. But most people are not willing to them. That's making mistakes is like stepping backwards. That's so and that's not what making mistakes is. Making mistakes is about learning. And, and, and it's where the juice is for me. You know, it's the, I still don't really tackle big, hard things because I want to, I want to pour the energy into answering these other kinds of questions. Like what would happen if, you know? Yeah. You're so that is so brilliant because yeah, people know, people know that this stuff is good you know but i think you're absolutely right it's, i know i'm conditioned not to make a mistake and in fact i'm terrified of making clothes i did the home ec in the eighth grade i was the worst my mother my mother is actually like a tailor and i cannot make two things line up i made the skirt that had stripes and the stripes were side they were like bird they were they were diagonal they weren't supposed to be you just don't have enough information right yeah i was like i'm bad at this i'm not gonna do it anymore so <laughs> yeah so, so i wow. think what i'm teaching is courage and 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 i think that and the older we get the less willing we are to not be good at things so we start losing the attrition rate becomes higher as we get and we just want to stay in the lanes that we're good at. Like, I don't like cooking. I don't want to get good at it because I don't like it. But if I, I know enough about, about failing that I'm willing to like learn about, like I tried to start an orchard once mm. I failed. It was a really expensive, really time consuming fail. That one hurt. That one hurt. Um, and oh, well, I'm over it now. Right. And I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to stay in the lanes where I'm good. So then, you know, you add that. But so let's go back to the question. If the question is, what would it be like? It would be like it used to be. It would be like the olden days where, where, you know, you, you would walk into, I can only speak from like my own, my own Western understanding of things. So, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to sound biased when I do it, but I don't have, I don't have an understanding of Asian culture from the inside or of Africa, but I imagine that there are some similarities all over the planet. And in my world, I come from a long line of textiles women that were all makers and they made clothes and they made quilts and they, they just made, and it felt good and we did it. But then if you go back one generation, everybody comes from that in the West. We all come from that. And so if you wanted anything nice, you had to learn how to make it. When I was a kid, there wasn't a lot to buy. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you were creative or you had a certain bent, you had to make it yourself. So, so if everybody knows how to sew, or at least everybody knows how to alter, then you can buy anything and you can make it into the thing that you want. So what that does automatically is it cuts down on the waste stream. 
And I throw this idea out there that really puts people on their ear. And I actually did it in a presentation once where I said, stop donating, just stop donating. Don't donate. And nobody can wrap their head around that idea. But if you don't donate, we don't have a waste stream. So you start building in these kind of permaculture principles that, that, that inform you that, that what you purchase in the beginning determines what happens at the end of its life. Mm-hmm. So don't buy cheap, weird shit. And yeah. then you don't have to, you know what I mean? Then you don't have to donate it. Right, right away. I'm like, well, what am I going to do with all those shitty t-shirts that fell apart then? Stop buying <laughs> shitty t-shirts and then you don't have to donate, right? Or they become rags, right? They become, that's, you know, and then let me throw this other idea out there. Um, stop washing your clothes so much and get rid of your dryer. Those yeah. are the two things that will break clothing down faster than anything else is the laundry, the way you handle your clothing. So stop donating and stop washing everything so much. You're just not that dirty. You know, <laughs> wear barrier layers, you know, like, like there's these things that we do now that are part of our, part of the American ethos that are stupid. But like, we can buy anything because we can donate it. I have like 18 gallon totes in the garage full of clothing, clothing that I love. It's just a little out of style right now. But when I want to go shopping, I can go there first and I can dig through these totes. I can be like, oh yeah, I loved that. And, and if I just do this to it, then it'll fill this weird bald spot in my closet. So I have this like long lasting interactive relationship with the things that I wear. And so I think, you know, if, if, if these were back in practice, which they always were, if these things were back in practice, it would automatically lower the footprint. It would change. It would, in, it would inform those who are selling to us that they have to do it different. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it's like the way the organic movement has really taken hold. I mean, it's still only a portion, but it's because people will spend money on something if they can. You know, it's privileged, right. and I'm going to acknowledge that. Yeah. But if, if we've got it to spend, people will spend money on the thing that's better for the planet. Right, right. Yeah, let's let's teach these companies not to make five dollar t-shirts. Right, right. Five dollar t-shirts. Well, how about this? Let's teach these companies not to make cotton t-shirts. We got to get out of the cotton business. I know we got to get out. Cotton is destroying the planet, whether it's organic or not. But linen, I love linen too. Yeah, and linen takes a whole lot less water. Um, Mm -hmm. you almost never need to spray it. It's almost as good as hemp. Yeah, we got to get out of. You got to stop buying cotton. You know, that's the other, like, it's, it is, it's, it's destroying ecosystems. Mm. It's really, really thirsty stuff. So, yeah. And really needs a lot of pesticides and herbicides and mm-hmm. yeah. And even when it's done organically, it still needs too much water. Yeah. So move finding. So these are these are big questions, you know, like, what do you mean? Stop doing cotton. What am I going to sleep on? What am I going to dry myself with? You right. know, hate so- I really hate, I hate synthetic right. fibers, but there are other things. There are other things. And so looking back bamboo, at the- people are doing bamboo now. There's bamboo. Um, well, and so, but then we get into the question of, of cellulose and, and what an environmental footprint cellulose. Oh my God. Where? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I know. Just don't buy anything new. Go to slow fiber and get reclaimed fabrics. <laughs> right. And, and thrift shopping, you know, they, you've ever seen that pyramid. There's a pyramid that talks about um, how to, I think it was, it may have been put out by um, um, fashion revolution or one of the like good on you, you know, there's all these um, dot coms that are helping people to work more towards sustainable decision-making in their closets. And they made this pyramid and 
and the, the best thing to do, the very best thing to do is to use what you have. The next best thing to do is to borrow from a friend. The next best thing to, or to rent. The next best thing to do after that is to buy used. And the very last thing you should do is buy new. And then the very last thing after that that nobody includes in that is to consider very carefully what you buy new. And if you add the idea that you can't donate it at the end of its life, it will change the way you purchase. Mm-hmm. So make your own, right? I mean, let's get into the fabric waste stream. You see, it's it's the way that this whole thing gets unpacked. It's 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 it all roads lead back to the capitalist model is broken. Right. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Well, so, if it's at end, it's unsustainable. Absolutely. And it's growing end. like mad. So the second world economies are coming up into their own. We have emerging middle classes in China, emerging middle classes in India. These are places where they want cars, they want shopping malls, they want their chance at what we call the American dream. Well, we uh, and the rest of the West um, understand, oh no, this is really bad. And fortunately in India, they, they're understanding it too. In China, they're catching up around the planet. I mean, everywhere they're saying, oh no, this is bad. The waste stream is bad. It's, there's too much stuff everywhere. You can have anything you want right now. Mm-hmm. like that's no good that is no good <laughs> so reach back into time you know that's what it would be like go back go back to the 1940s and then go back to the 1880s and then go back pre pre-industrial revolution and get a sense of that kind of um innate economy that was built into the home that you used everything that you had you grew what you needed you made what you could and the skills were built on necessity you know, I, I love the idea that women, women and men, um, they they wore the same styles for their whole lives. You didn't change fashion until the Industrial Revolution. You know, so you would become a master at that one pattern. You'd make that same dress over and over again. You might make it for your sister. You might make it for your daughter. You might make it for your mother. But you're all operating on the same pattern and just adjusting it. So you were a total pro. And you could do that thing in your sleep. So of course, everything looks so skilled. These women are so skilled, but they had less fabric to choose from. They had less pattern choices to make. They weren't always challenging it because they needed a challenge. No, they needed to get dressed. <laughs> so And so and they needed to stay dressed and they needed to be warm and they needed to feel good about it, right? Because there's never been a time where you didn't want to feel beautiful in, in what you wear. You know, we all, we want that. We deserve that. You know, it's part of, it's part of your imagination. And so- so that's what I do. I just look back to the then times. What would I do in 1880? What would I do in 1720? What would I do? And and then that's the homework. You know, how how do how do I unpack this? Wow. Okay. Well, you've just kind of changed my mind about a bunch of things because I'm a ruthless donator and not much of a mender, even though I admire the shit out of it. And I'm always like, oh, look, I follow mending and I read about mending, but then I throw in the donate pile. <laughs> Right. And so, but so, you know what, that donate pile of yours is such a resource for you. Mm-hmm. So check me out here. I love this. This I love that you just said that because that, that donate pile is a place to practice. You were getting rid of it anyway, right? You're like, it doesn't fit. It looks weird. It's doing that pilling thing. It's a great place to practice. Um, um, take a t-shirt apart that from the pile and put it back together by hand, you know, mm-hmm. go to Natalie Channon's world and you know of alabama channon and and learn how to hand stitch because she that's what she does she hand stitches clothing um take take 
take a pattern and lay it on an old, like, like take that men's shirt and take it apart for the fabric. If you can't relate to the item that's in it, take everything and cut it into squares and turn it into, to us, fabric is square. You'll start thinking about it as fabric instead of a shirt. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so, so use that as a resource, as a, as a teaching tool for yourself and just keep it and then take the balance of it, put it in the, you know, put it in the fireplace. Right. You know, but, but cut it up and turn it into things that make sense to you because they're yours. See, that's what I think it is. I was, I was watching what you're doing. It's the fact that when you make your own stuff or use reclaimed stuff or things like that, then it becomes much more yours and stuff that we just buy and chuck and buy and chuck. And I have these personally, I'm like, I'm of these two minds. Like one of, I'm totally one mind. I'm Laura Engels Wilder. I'm just living out in the prairie and, you know, and just like getting psyched, psyched that I get like an, one orange for Christmas. You know what I mean? So <laughs> that's one part of my mind. And then one of my mind has a regular Amazon you know, uh, relationship. So, <laughs> so, and I want to be, I, I, and I consider myself pretty, like, I think about this stuff. And so I know if I'm like this, then, then I'm not alone. Right. You know, I know what I'm doing. And yet I'm like, yeah, but I need the blah, 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 blah. So, um, uh, what I have noticed is when I make it myself, oh, that's what I was thinking just this morning is that making your own clothes, I think is probably like, um growing your own food in the garden so just yesterday i was working in the garden and one of the potato plants was done and so i pulled it up and we had a bunch of potatoes and we cooked them last night and ate them and i was like these i was so excited about these potatoes i kept telling we grew these potatoes these potatoes were in the garden this morning da, 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 da. you know <laughs> i mean if the world comes to a crashing halt i'm not gonna live on the potatoes in my garden right there's a feeling about something that i've been so involved in that totally changes the product agency it's yeah. agency, ownership, agency. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that I, okay. So I think that this taps into your, get into your amygdala on this one there. Mm. You are genetically predisposed to feel good about those potatoes. You are genetically predisposed to dress your children or they will die in the night. You are hardwired for 90,000 years to protect your own. And these are the two ways that we know for the longest amount of time that we do it, we feed them and we keep them warm and safe. And clothing taps into that, fabric taps into that. Those potatoes, they hit that nerve so hard that you are high from it. You're supposed to be. The, when you gave up that agency, when you gave up the permission to that, a little part of you dies. And we do it, it's a, capitalism is a slow unpacking of your peace giving it away your peace is found in those accomplishments and this is this is the that's like that's that alligator shit in the back of your head right there you know and i want to live there i that's where i get the most joy you know is in that place right i am so fascinated with the whole like slow living and minimalism and i guess you're exactly right it's exactly because of that it's mm -hmm. that that's what makes me happy every time I'm like what really makes me happy digging up potatoes and cooking them for yeah. supper yeah and then talking about no. it three freaking days afterwards. Are you kidding? I grew those potatoes. <laughs> awesome. Even if they were little and green and weird, you did it. You know what I mean? Like, I so get that. I so get that. That is where, that's where life is happening. We have the luxury of being able to pad the difference. You have potatoes for three days, but you needed them for five. You go to the store and buy the other two days worth. So that kind of principle can apply to everything. This is permaculture at its 
best, you know, it's, and so agency, that's that, that interactive relationship you can have with your life. Ooh, that just gets me excited. Me too. Yeah. That, you know, I gotta say if that's the vibe you just articulated it, that I pick up every time you share something, it is about agency and it is about the excitement of just being involved in your own life. And what I see when you share stuff and I will share, it's at slow fiber and I will, I will share this with show notes and all this kind of stuff, but I don't, I know you sell things. I've bought things, but what I see you doing is making things and encouraging people to make things. And, and it's, there's so many people that are just on the socials to sell you the stuff. And to you, it's almost like it comes across as secondary, like, and if you need this, I've got it, mm-hmm. which is a, a tricky business model, but <laughs> it's not capitalist, but, but it seems to be working because what you are, well, from what I see, what you are offering, and I want to talk about this, is community and education and encouragement. And people seem to just be so hungry for that. I think so. I think so. Some people are put off by it too. I get the full range. I get people who poke their head and they look around and they're gone. And then I get other people who come in and they start to cry because somebody hears them. They, they know that in their whole lives, they just needed a store like mine. And then I have other people that come in and they're, they're like, I almost get the, the vibe. Like, well, why didn't I think of that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, and there's enough room for everybody. I do. And I've have people come in and confess their business plans to me, which I hate. And I know, I, thank you for doing it. But, you know, if you're going to open up a fabric store in Carmel, just do it and let me find out about it behind your back because it hurts. But I want you successful. I want everybody. There should be enough room for everybody in this. Just, you know, just like antique stores and thrift stores kind of pool in neighborhoods. You know, I want there to be a fabric store in every town. I want there to be a yarn resource in every town. I want there to be a pre-owned resource. There used to be garment districts. Right, exactly. Districts. So, yeah, so I feel like, I feel like um, there's a lot of room, you know? I mean, and if anybody is interested, I am so willing to scale. (laughs) If someone wants to come, I'm so good at the brain of this thing now that, you know, I think there should be a slow fiber in every major city in America as what I think. So, okay. You're you're willing to franchise? Yeah. Yeah. There's room for it. There's absolutely, because the way we know where there are thrift stores in every marginal neighborhood in America, multiple, you know, it's not just Goodwill and Salvation Army anymore. And St. Vincent de Paul, there's like everybody's because we got too much shit on the planet. We got too much stuff. Let's keep it in circulation. Get it out from under your bed. Get it out of the closet and let's get it moving. The storage areas. Oh man, the storage areas make me crazy. It's like, mm-hmm. dude, when you have to buy a whole other house, put your stuff in it, you got too much stuff. You got too much stuff. <laughs> That's a fact. That's a fact. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, I, um, yeah, I want to ask about your community, like the different kinds of community you do. One thing I'm curious about that I don't want to veer too far away without asking is you do strike me as an introvert. <laughs> highly skilled introverts are what we're called yeah i can host the party and it kills me yeah yeah that's what i wondered yeah you just sort of have the quiet vibe and yet you put so many things together yeah, yeah. how do you manage that um 
Yeah, that's a good question. So in my previous incarnation as a coffee roaster's wife and um, um, business owner, it was my job to to host the party, right? I mean, you gotta you, you gotta you gotta engage the people. You gotta man the counter. People have to feel like they understand you, like they like they know you, like like they own you a little bit. And that's the secret to to grooming a client base. And and people want a piece of you, and you gotta give it to them. And I didn't know this when I was in that part of my life that. That, that drained thing that happens to you um, from that, for introverts, from that interaction, um, it's because I was in the wrong line of work. Oh. I, yeah, when I am I am an introvert. And I, at the end of the day, I do need to, I, and a lot of my friends, like I, I feel like I don't take very good care of my friends because, it, because I give it all away at work. By the time I get home, I'm done. But I also have a vested interest in the success of this business because if it fails, I'll probably want to die, you know. And so, so that shop. So no, that's yeah, not. I don't have a lot of choices outside <laughs> of that. And so, so I, yeah, it, you have to recover. You do have to recover. Um, and a lot of my, I spend actually probably more time in the planning of things than in the participating of them too. So I have people who sit certain groups. Like I have an embroidery group and I don't sit that group. Somebody else does that. And it's because it's not really my scene. There's a weaving, a, a weaving group that meets in there. I don't sit in, on that. That happens in my classroom also. I sit on the ones that feed me where I get something back. Like the garment one feeds me. Um, I like my little knitting group because I don't get to knit otherwise. And so I, I, I guess I sort of adopt more of the cooperative model in these things so that I don't have to be in charge of everything. If I had to man it all, all I would be doing is facilitating and that sucks the life out of me. Um, but I don't, I don't, I live alone. My partner lives two hours away. Um, and my work is relatively quiet. So I do get windows in between like Saturdays are busy. And by the end of Saturday, I want to shoot everybody. I'm, I'm kind of short and snippy and, and very human, you know, <laughs> In, in the work. Um, but, I, you know, I know people who my best friend is an extrovert and we don't understand each other. But the funny thing about an extrovert is they think there's something wrong with you <laughs> and because they can't relate, you know, um, but we introverts have had to live in an extrovert's world forever. So, you know, you just you have to recoup. You have to to I spend Sundays in bed, basically, you know, I, with the remote and I don't and I maybe no, a laptop. You, yeah. So, but yeah, are you an, you're an introvert too? I am. Yeah. yeah. And people think that I'm extroverted because I'm loud. Right. And because I get excitable. <laughs> Ew. And I'm like, I am so done. And I must be away from all humans. Like nobody speak to me <laughs> for yeah. a while. And I do, I do body work. That's how I make a living <gasps> and energy work. Like I, poof, I give it out, but I all away. And I get home and I'm like, no one doc to mom because <laughs> but maybe that's why i recognize it yeah but you but you recover pretty quickly you think because mm -hmm. you know it i think if you didn't recognize that about yourself maybe you would never be able to put it back together you know because well, i have to plan i have to build into my life like it, i really need at least one day a week where it's very quiet and unstructured if I don't get that, I start to unravel. Yeah, too. that's Sundays for me. Yeah, yeah. I spend a lot of that watching movies in bed. Yeah, that's the way to survive it.
And I ask this because from an outsider's point of view, it looks like you are doing a million things, which you are. And, you know, and, and I, I think it's good for people to hear the way that one does a million things is to stop for, uh, for a moment and just recollect, re regather yeah. your forces and then go back out and do a million things again. And, and then, and then, you know, in, in all honesty, like I do a million things and I don't do any one thing really deeply because that's not exciting to me. I want, I want to be the squirrel. It's like, oh, squirrel, you know, and like chasing after the project. Interesting, but I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna like go into one thing so deep. I'm just not interested in that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm actually, personally, I'm the same way. I always, I have a lot of different art forms and all of them, I've got three or four projects going at any given time and I just cycle through them. Oh, I wanna do this, this, this. I get bored very, very easily. Yeah, and so I can work my way through things, but doing one thing for a long period of time, I'm like, Ugh. that's a different yeah. personality type. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's not me. Yeah. Well, let me let me let me offer this idea too that there are kind of there are two different types of makers out there. There are those that are pursuing creative juice, and that's me. And then there are those that love the end result. Mm -hmm. And 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 I find that like knitters and quilters tend to mostly it seems like, and I'm happy to be wrong about this. So far, it's very unstructured study but they tend to be more outcome driven they like the end result and that's a that's a like here's the rules follow the rules and you'll get the end result so that's creating and then there's creative and that to me every step of the way has to have like these minor little decision making things attached to them or, or you're i'm out i'm out right you know? don't tell me how to make a thing yeah, 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 exactly. I wanna, I wanna Is figure. Is that out. all wrong? I don't care. I don't care. I don't I care. throw away a half done project. I'm like, this thing failed. Right. Like, exactly. About earlier. Exactly. And that's so <laughs> oh, big. It's the why, right? It's the why that, that we do it. Yeah. And I wanna, I just wanna share this idea. I just came across. There's a book, and I can't remember the writer, but it's called How to Do Nothing. I love this book. I've actually reread it over and over because there's just so much good stuff in it. And this one part I was just rereading the other day was talking about the idea that we always think of creativity as producing something. I think you'll resonate with this, but creativity is just as much about maintaining. When we maintain something, that is creative. When we when we fix a shirt, when we have a mending bar, when we sweep a floor, when we clean out a refrigerator, that is creative too. Mm -hmm. The capitalist idea is that we have to keep making something and making something and making something like, geez, how much stuff do we need? Right, right. Yeah, so that yeah. interactive relationship with your closet or your home is where that juice we were talking about before happens. You know, where you, the, the potato story we were on, Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is that's where it happened that that I have some lots of things in my closet that are sort of half done. Mm -hmm. um, but that's okay, because I'll, I'll probably change the sleeve on that eventually when I get tired of that. But it's good for now, or that's getting a little faded in that one spot, but I really like it. So I better duplicate it. But it's good right there, right? You know what I mean? So it's just, it's just kind of in and out. It's not like, I lost a button and it goes in the pile. No, 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 no. I don't. And I may change all the buttons on something because it's boring. I used to like that shirt. What happened? Well, change the buttons and you'll like it again. So that kind of interactive in and out, like you said, maintenance component that's missing from everybody's life is so satisfying. It absolutely feeds that creative juice. Absolutely. That just makes me excited. Now yeah. I want to just go. I just want to go play with I'm going to go through my donate pile and I'm going to. Yeah. Right. something in it yeah 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 now i wanted to ask you as we kind of come to the end of our 
a wonderful hour. This has been so much fun. Um, so what what are you what's in the what's in the pipeline for you? What's coming up next for you? What are you creating like that people can like do you have another um, book study coming up? Book? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's always stuff on the uh, I'm guessing it's turning out to about three times a year I put this kind of like push towards putting classes out there. And so um Let's see. Um, one of my favorite things that I'm doing right now, I started this class called Meditation, Slow Stitching and the Elements and Principles of Design. Oh, my and God. In person. And I would like to do it on Zoom. I just have to figure out how. Um, and so what we do, it's slow stitch, basically. It's handwork. And, and so you show up and the middle of the table has just a bunch of stuff that will help to develop this idea. And then I, I reach into the fine arts world and I pull out images um, painting, sculptures, whatever, that help to support the idea. Like the next one we're doing this coming Friday is called, uh, is on uh, har harmony and monochrome. Those are the terms we're going to, and so we're going to dig around in those two terms and we're going to create work that's just slow stitch. It's incremental decision, that's slow incremental decision-making. We'll do it for a couple of hours. There's a meditation kind of in the middle of it that I don't do. I bring one in, you know, I can I canned one in because I can't lead a meditation, but it's just helping people to work. What happens is people work through that that place in your decision making where you stop, you get up, and you just turn the TV on, and and it happens to everybody. We all get to this place, and I help people over those that hurdle, and we do it with meditation, we do it with breathing, we do it with. Um, more information and and at the end of the two hours you actually leave a little high <laughs> it's kind of cool oh man yeah. so that's on fridays that's the last friday of the month and i am plotting an upcycle camp for 2023 we will do die camp again in 2023 so die camp will be in june get in line because everybody who was there last time gets first crack at signing up um, and that's phenomenal. Die camp was amazing. Oh, and it looks so good. The yeah. reason why it was so good is this cooperative model I'm talking about is based loosely and it's my own creation so far. I'm sure somebody is doing it somewhere, but I haven't met them yet. Um, but it's based loosely on the sewing bee where everybody contributed, you know, the, so everybody would help get a quilt quilted because that's the slow part. The piecing was your own fun thing, but you'd get the whole community together to do the quilting part of a quilt. And that was called a sewing bee. Well, everybody contributes because everybody knows something. And so at die camp, we had lots of, we had, we ended up with 17 people and 17 teachers because everybody had to present, everybody had to learn. So, so we're going to do, I'm going to stick with that. I think it's, it makes it possible for me to participate as a participant uh -huh. instead of just as the facilitator. So there's die camp. There will be upcycle camp. All this is on the website um, so far. No, upcycle camp is not on the website yet. It will be. I'm just formulating that now, but that's not till next year. Um, the next book club, which starts uh, early September, um, will be on a book called Poetic Cloth by oh, Hannah Lamb. Yeah, Hannah Lamb. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna do that in the next book club. That's on Zoom. And then I'm doing um, I'm doing something called um, Coolest Jeans Ever, which is a Zoom-based. Probably I think we get to do it about twice a month, but we're gonna redo a pair of jeans together. So like how to how to save that pair of Levi's that you love so much that are just past their sell-by. So that'll be twice a month till the end of the year. So that's on Zoom and it's cheap and it's fun and that's cool. Yeah. And this is all slowfiber.com. All at slowfiber.com. Okay, I'm making a note. I will put it in all the 
all the things, slowfiber.com, go look it up. Making me wish I lived in the San Fran area so that I could just run down there and do some slow stitching with you. But, but you know, you do offer you offer a lot of things on the Zoom platform, which is not the same, but it does open up possibilities. So, and you did you did just recently do that pro row um, stitch circle, and that was so cool because people just needed to talk and connect and sort of just open their hearts, and it was beautiful. It yeah, that, that was, you know, I'll tell you, those things wipe me out, though. The whole next day, I feel like I've been licked by a camel because <laughs> it's such a one way street. You know, it's this like giving out, but the receiving part of it is it's hard. And so I actually have a friend who's really good at this. And she sort of talked me off the cliff and said, this is what you do. This is how because she does it. And I don't have a lot of experience with Zoom. I've done, I do it in a book club capacity, but teaching that way is really challenging. So I'm going to try it again with the with the coolest pants ever. Well, you need to look easy. So thank you. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay, Jackie, this has been absolutely wonderful. I feel so inspired, so lit up. I'm hoping everyone listening to this is going to be like, I am going to go and like fix all my stuff and dig potatoes and make quilts and do the things <laughs> we did in the 1880s because that was when that that's what we're wired for. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And that's why it makes us feel so good. Mm -hmm. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So we, I will be stalking you on Facebook or sorry, not Facebook. I hate Facebook, Instagram. Yeah. You, know, you can so. stalk me on Facebook too. I don't do as much on Facebook, but Instagram ties over. So yeah, Facebook, if you are even slightly distractible, a little bit squirrel, me can't do it. It's yeah. too many squirrels. <laughs> yeah. Too many squirrels. Is I need one squirrel. Right. Right. Oh man. So I just really enjoyed this. I thank you so, so much. And um, I'm sure that everyone listening today is just going to be thrilled. Thank so, you. Thank you so much, Jackie. My pleasure. Wishing you all the best. Thank you, Robin. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Art, Magic, and Medicine. I hope it inspired you to get out there and be your wild, unique self and to create what you're most called to make. If you know someone who would enjoy this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you have the time to rate and review on iTunes, it would mean the world to me. Here's to a world full of art, magic, and medicine.